The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. The book of Jonah has become increasingly uh, special to me and increasingly helpful to me as uh, you know, I tend to feel in some ways uh, that I've been called to go to Nineveh in, some, in, in a lot of ways, and, and I can make a lot of comparisons uh, to that, and uh, Dearborn has become that in our, in our state at least uh, very much. And the, the first question that we come across when we're looking at the book of Jonah is, how do we explain Jonah's behavior? Uh, if you're, you're familiar with this, the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came unto Jonah and Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and found a ship going down to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, and went with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we see Jonah here uh, kind of acts almost uncharacteristically for a prophet of God. We read in the book of Kings, we, we know who Jonah was, where he was from, and we know that he was a, a prophet, and his job was like all the other prophets. He'd get a message from God, he'd give him a message, give him a recipient, Jonah, go deliver this message. And he had to deliver a message to the king, and I'm sure he delivered other messages, but all of a sudden he gets a message, and the recipient is the city of Nineveh, and Jonah, before we can even figure out what's going on, is on a boat going the other direction. And the Bible is clear that he is running from the presence of the Lord. And so what prompts Jonah to do this? Why does he behave this way when he's given such an awesome task to go unto the city of Nineveh? And I've heard other um, ideas put out there, speculation. Uh, some say perhaps Jonah was afraid. And I can't say fear wasn't a part. I'm sure it was an intimidating task. Uh, the city of Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria, and they were the world power, and they were a very violent people. They're the city of Nineveh, the prophet Micah cried against it. He said, woe unto the bloody city. It was a violent people, and it was a, a place that uh, would have been intimidating to go to, and it was a place that was actively a threat even to the nation of Israel. So I'm sure fear and intimidation may have been a part of it, but when we look at the rest of the book, Jonah doesn't seem to be a very fearful person. Jonah seems to be a pretty bold guy to me. We, we see him pretty boldly running from God. And then once he realizes that the storm that God sends is for him, uh, what does he say? He says, throw me overboard. Uh, that's a pretty bold move, I would say. He didn't seem to be afraid of that. He, he could have probably let, the, let everybody go down on the ship, but he, he took the bold move and he's, throw me overboard, throw me into the, into the sea. And so I don't see Jonah necessarily being a person that is overcome by fear. And, and then when we read further into the book, we actually do get to understand uh, what the problem was, and but it's not it's it's not until we get all the way over to chapter four when Jonah reveals his true motives. Why did Jonah run from Nineveh? Why did he go the other way? Why did he disobey God? Why did he give himself forever the reputation of being the runaway rebellious prophet? Why did he do that? And in response to God's sparing of Nineveh. Obviously, Jonah was swallowed by the whale, vomited on shore. That's the word that the Bible uses. And then had another chance, preached to the people of Nineveh, a simple message, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he gave them. But it was all it took. Because the people of Nineveh, the Bible says, turned. They repented. There was a great revival in Nineveh. And the, the people from the king all the way down to the lowest, they even made the animals participate in the repentance. And they put sackcloth on all of them. And they all cried out to God. And they all turned from their violence. They turned from their sins. 
And when God saw that, the Bible says God repented him of the evil that he was going to do towards Nineveh. And so he spared the city. And when Jonah sees the city spared, he reacts in another uncharacteristic way, but it's an uncharacteristic way that reveals what was really going on in Jonah's mind and Jonah's heart. Look at Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. The Bible says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I think, if anything, Jonah is a little dramatic here because he multiple times asked God to take his life because he's so distraught over the sparing of Nineveh. But did you catch there the, the reasoning? Because Jonah references back to when he was in Israel. He says, Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? So he's upset. He's distraught that God has chosen to spare this city. And he says, isn't this what I said when I was back in Israel? This is the reason why I ran. This is why I didn't go in the first place, because I knew that thou art a gracious God. And I knew that thou art merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. In other words, Jonah knew that if he went and preached to the people of Nineveh, that there was a chance that they were going to repent and that God was going to spare them. Because he knew God. He was a prophet. He knew that this was God's nature. From the word of God and from his relationship with God, he knew that if the Ninevites repented, that God would spare them. And the reality is Jonah did not want that to happen. He did not want God to spare Nineveh. And, and when you come to grips with the reality of what's going on in Jonah's mind at heart, it's appalling to think that Jonah did not want God to spare these people. He did not want God to show grace or mercy to these people. He had a prejudice in his heart against those people. Prejudice is a previously placed opinion in your, in, in, against a person or a group of people. It's a, a deep resentment to the extreme form of hatred for a group of people. And that's, I think, the only way we can describe the way that Jonah looked at Nineveh was hatred and resentment and prejudice because there is no greater hatred than a willingness to allow a group of people to experience the wrath of God. There is no greater hatred. There is no greater animosity you can have towards a person or a group of people than to willingly accept in your hearts that they might face the wrath of God. There is no worse fate. There is no greater curse you can wish upon a person or group of people than that they might experience the wrath of God. And yet that is the level of resentment that Jonah had allowed to build in his heart towards the people of Nineveh to the fact that he was angry and upset at their repentance and their revival and their sparing. What a, uh, how, how far had the prophet of God fallen to this point where he is upset at the repentance of these people? Now, on the face level, the Ninevites were naturally Jonah's enemies. They were his enemies by every definition of the word. An enemy is someone who is actively opposed. And the Ninevites were his enemy. I mean, they were against everything Jonah stood for. They were against his God. They were against his nation. They were against his way of life. And they were, in every definition, his enemy. 
They worshipped another god. They worshipped multiple gods. They were a pagan people. They were a wicked people. And they were his national enemies. They were the enemy of Israel. They were an active, violent threat to Jonah's safety, to the safety of his family, to the safety of his nation. They were his enemy. And Jonah reveals some of his thinking. He's thinking in a nationalistic sense here because he says, was not this my saying when I was back in my country? And he has a bit of a us versus them mentality here. And, and you know, why would God, these people are against us, me and you. <laughs> why would we spare them? They're the enemy. They're against us. And they were an active, violent threat. And because they were against him, because they were in the position of his enemy, Jonah took a position against them. And he took up the cause, and he was their enemy. And this is the way of the world. This is the natural way of the world. And Jesus references this in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 43. He says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. You see, Jesus referenced that saying like it was just common knowledge. You've heard people say this, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's kind of the way people live, right? That's kind of common. Love the people that are like you and like you and hate the people that are not like you and are against you. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That is the way of the world, and that was the way of the world in Jonah's time. Love your neighbors, the people inside, your, your, the, the people, the other Jews, other people inside your nation, but hate your enemies. Hate the people that are outside. Hate the people that are not like you. This was a common enough saying in Jesus' day. I believe it was common in Jonah's day. I believe it is common today. Hate is rampant in American society. And the, the divides have become so deep that people cannot even have reasonable dialogue and conversation with people who are different than them, believe differently from them. Uh, it, it, everything elevates all the way to hatred and violence. And we see this kind of boiling over and erupting all over our country and all over the world. And, and this is naturally the way of the world. This is the course of the world. How foreign, then, is the idea that Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies. It's countercultural. It's against the way of the world. And this is what Jonah misunderstood. He was loving his neighbor and hating his enemy. And he was hating the Ninevites because they were against him. I believe one enemy that we have allowed to build resentment in our hearts, generally, as a nation, as Americans, is the Arab people. For over a decade now, Arabs have been the enemy. And it's a natural thing. I, I, it, it's been my lifetime and my generation that this has happened. Okay? I didn't see Pearl Harbor. I didn't witness the Cold War. But I remember 9-11. And I remember when global terrorism became an active threat. And when, and when Muslim people became the enemy. And when our troops went over to the Middle East to fight against Arab people. And it's been the last decades that our video games and our movies culturally have depicted Arab people as the enemy. And naturally so. They have opposed us, and so we have opposed them. And it's easy to let that resentment build up to a level that Jonah got to where we're willing to rejoice in their destruction. And we're willing to let them go and not necessarily burdened to see them repent and see them reached with the gospel. Dearborn, as the center of Arab culture in the United States, has become the center of hatred towards Arab people in the United States. Dearborn has become the place, and, and uh, I have the article here, Bloomberg published an article in 2012, it's titled, Dearborn, Where Americans Come to Hate Muslims. And so much of the anti 
Islamic anti-Arabic sentiments that, that have built up in people in the United States have been just focused and laser beamed on the city of Dearborn. It's become the target for so much. In Dearborn, people have seen their, their mosques um, uh, vandalized with blood and pig's heads. Uh, they've seen public demonstrations of people burning piles of Qurans. And it's become the epicenter of Islamic hate and, and Arabic hate in the United States. And these people have experienced that, unfortunately, sometimes, even in the name of Christianity and, and associated Christianity with hatred. It's unfortunate, but it's true. But again, I come back to the foreign command of Jesus. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We have a mandate, biblically, from the Lord Jesus himself to love the Muslims, to bless the Muslims, to do good to the Muslims, and to pray for the Muslims. And I would expand that to whoever in your mind and heart has been identified as the enemy. Because we naturally peg people that are different from us against us as enemies. And, and we have identified many enemies. Perhaps the criminals, perhaps the liberals, perhaps the Democrats. We, we tend to label the people who have different ideas than us as the enemy and view them as the problem. And if we're not careful, can begin to have a resentment and a hatred towards those people that are not like us. When Jesus would have us love those people, do good to those people. And ultimately, if the greatest act of hatred is to be willing to allow someone to suffer eternal punishment, then there is no greater act of love than to share the gospel with someone. There is no greater way that we can show love, the love of Christ, the love of God, than to share the gospel with people, than to preach the gospel and, and, and to be witnesses in our community. And unfortunately, the world has this backwards because the gospel has come to be labeled as hatred and hate speech. And, and simply believing the things that the Bible says and being a witness and, 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 and proclaiming the truth that there is only one God, there is only one Christ, there is only one way to go to heaven, there is only one name that saves, is going to be increasingly labeled as hate. And as being a Christian and being a witness, you're going to be called a hater. And, and that speech is going to become limited because that is hateful speech. When the reality is the complete opposite. That is the most loving thing that you can do. It's the most loving thing that you can say. It's the greatest way that you can communicate your love to a person or a group of people or a community is to invest yourself in their salvation and their evangelization and the gospel saturating that city or that area. I believe that God is turning hearts away from prejudice specifically towards Arab people. And I've seen it. As we've gone to churches, I've had a number of people come and even confess to me their prejudice. And with tears in their eyes, say that God has told them that they need to help and reach out to Muslim people. One of these men was a veteran. And he fought in Iraq. And he said, I, I allowed myself to get so bitter against these people that even when I see them in the United States, I instinctively reach for my gun and I can't even talk to them. But with tears in his eyes, he said, the Lord told me that I, I need to repent of that and I need to be part of the solution. I need to witness to these people and I need to share the gospel with these people. And, and those kind of responses have thrilled my soul because that is the heart of God. Jonah's heart was prejudice. But what was God's heart towards the people of Nineveh? How did God look down when he saw that city? He didn't see an enemy, even though they were against him. They were against God. They were his enemies. 
God didn't respond with hate. God didn't respond as, as an enemy. How did God respond to these people? Where Jonah responded with prejudice, God responded with pity. And we see it in the end of the chapter here. God used a plant to teach Jonah a lesson about how he views humanity and humankind. God rebukes Jonah for his anger, and he allows a gourd to grow up. And Jonah sits under the gourd, and he gets some shade, and he gets comfortable, and then God strikes down the gourd, and the gourd dies. And Jonah is all the way back at, Lord, you should take my life. And he's instantly back at ground zero here. And, but then God, in a couple of verses here, the conclusion of the, 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 the book, the book ends rather abruptly. But there's so much here, and God uses it to teach Jonah a lesson about the way that he sees people. Look at what God says in verses 9 through 11. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? You see the word there? God says, Thou hast had pity on the gourd. Jonah had pity on a plant. God had pity on people. A mass of people. A huge group of people. A city of over half a million people. Jonah had more pity on the plant than he could on that whole city of people. What is pity? Pity is ultimately compassion. It's the ability to enter into the feelings of another person, to be distressed by their distresses, and have sympathy with their grief or misery. And that's the, the way that God looks at humanity. That's the way that God looks at the world. When Jesus was on the earth, it said that he looked on the, mansions, uh, the multitudes and he was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep scattered without a shepherd. And, and Christ's compassion led him to the cross. His love for the world caused him to give his life. And he had pity on the people that he saw. You see, when Jonah looked, he, he just saw enemies. But when God looked, he saw created beings. Look what he said about the plant in verse 10. He said, Thou hast pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow. Jonah didn't do anything to raise up that plant, and yet every single one of those people in Nineveh, God created them, God designed them, God let them grow. God provided their meals, the sun, the rain, and the wind, and the, and the, and the, the everything, that, that, the air that they breathed to give them life. God grew every single one of those people. Every single one is special to him. Everyone created in his image. Jonah had pity on a plant that he didn't even make grow. But he couldn't have pity on all of those people that God had raised up. All of those people that, that were special creations of God. God sees created beings. And God sees eternal beings. Look what else he says about the plant. Verse 11, he says, uh, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Not only did you not make that gourd grow, but that gourd came and went. That gourd is gone. It's done. But every single one of those people in Nineveh is going to live somewhere forever. They're not like that plant that can come and go. They are an eternal being. They are a soul that once they pass from this earth are going to live somewhere forever. They have an eternal destination that is dependent on their relationship with God. And so Jonah could have pity on a gourd, but he couldn't have pity on people who are eternal beings. But this is the way that God looks at people, and this is the way that we ought to look on the world. And when we see lost people, when we see people who are our enemies, 
sinful people, wicked people, who are against our God, against our country, against our way of life, in every way would be described as our enemy. Can you look past that and can you see a person that God loves, a person that God created, a person that God died for, and a person that is eternal, a soul that's going to live somewhere forever? There is no loss greater than the loss of a human soul. Jesus himself said, For what shall a profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There is no price that you can put on a human soul. And therefore, there is no sacrifice too great. There is no effort too great that results in the salvation of a human soul. It is the greatest work in all the world. It's the greatest investment in all the world. It's the greatest task that we can apply ourselves to with this short life that we're given on this earth. Again, it's the one thing we can't do in heaven. It's the task that we are given here on this earth. Jonah found delight in the potential destruction of Nineveh, but God found no such delight. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God said in Ezekiel, Say ye unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all should come to the knowledge and salvation of Jesus Christ. The death of an unsaved person is an unspeakable tragedy. We have to guard ourselves against becoming callous to that. We ought to always be sensitive to the death of a lost soul. It's a tragedy. Our mission in Dearborn is a mission of compassion. It's a mission of love. It's a mission of pity because there are people there who could be born in the United States of America, grow up, live their entire life, and not hear the gospel. That is unacceptable. I can't stand by and watch that happen. Somebody ought to do something about that. And that is what the Lord has directed us to do. We must do all that we can to prevent that from happening. I love the song, Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying, Snatch Them in Pity, from sin in the grave. Have pity on those lost souls all around you. The lost souls in your neighborhood, the lost souls that might live next door, the lost souls at your workplace, the lost souls in the city of Dayton, the state of Ohio, and the, the United States of America. Have pity on them. Have pity on them because you know their, de their destination. You know their sure destruction. Will you have pity enough and compassion enough to do something about it? Do what you can. Give what you can. Go where you can. Uh, speak to whoever you can to make a difference in the life of just one unsaved person. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Save them from a certain destruction. And I think the one that put it best was Charles Spurgeon. The great preacher said, If sinners be damned, let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Not one. That's our goal. That we wouldn't let them go without a warning. That we wouldn't let them go without a plea. Without someone in pity begging them to repent, to believe in Christ. Don't die without Christ. It's a great tragedy. Can we examine ourselves and examine our own hearts today to see who perhaps in our society, in our community, have we allowed to be labeled as enemies? Who have we allowed ourselves to lose compassion and pity for their souls? And if there is, may we repent of that. 
and ask Christ to restore the perspective that he has when he looks down on the world and see people for what they are, eternal beings created in God's image that he loved and died for? And would we give ourselves? There is no sacrifice too great in the cause of the evangelization of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to stand up here and preach your word. Lord, I pray that this message, Lord, would take root in our hearts, Lord, that everyone would be drawn in some greater capacity, Lord, to serve you and to be a greater witness, Lord. I, I pray that you would even guide this church, Lord, to be compassionate for those communities that lie around it, Lord, that perhaps lie without a gospel witness, Lord. May that not be the case. Lord, help us to do what we can to rescue the perishing and to care for the dying that are in our own communities and in our own cities, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.